0: Howdy, Todd files and welcome to another episode of Escaping the Cave at EscapingTheCave.com. Hi there, I'm your friendly host, Todd. How's your week? Just me today. You get a solo episode this week. Maybe a few solo episodes this week. Brian had some things going on today. Almost had Chris finagled into joining me. Almost. I think he knows better. Ha <laughs> <sighs> What is today? I think it's October the 3rd. 4th? 3rd? 4th? 4th? 3rd? It's Sunday. Oh, hey, I have a watch. I can tell you. (laughs) Sunday the 4th. Coming up on 10 o'clock at night. I'm trying to think of ways to avoid broaching the subject of Donald Trump. Not working. I can't get over this. I told Chris today, man, we chatted on the phone a little bit, made a little trip to Grand Rapids. On the way back, he called me and we're like, uh, you know, it's really too bad. 2020 is so damn boring. I wish there was something going on that could just distract me or involve me, get me excited about watching the news. (laughs) Oh, my God. So... If you've been perhaps living in a, under a cave somewhere, under a cave, yes, under a cave, you would have to be beneath the cave to have missed the news on Friday that glorious leader was diagnosed with COVID. He's in uh, in the hospital today, Walter Reed, and everybody's supposed to act like oh, we wish him well. The virtue signaling, (laughs) it's fake, it's transparent. Everybody knows what everybody's thinking. God, we hope this hits him like a fucking thunderbolt. To pretend that you do not like Donald Trump, that you've been raging and rampaging against him for the last three years, almost four, more than four if you continue you include the campaign, 2016. To act like now you're concerned about his health and well-being is an insult. Michael Che nailed this on uh, Saturday Night Live this week. They're back in the studio. (laughs) They picked a hell of a week to come back. (laughs) Bill Maher, by the way, was not on this week. He picked a hell of a week to take off. Anyway, (laughs) Michael Che pointed out that everything about this development, taking everything into account, Donald Trump and the way he's handled coronavirus, the things he's said about coronavirus since February. Everything about this development is hilarious. It's you could mathematically if you could mathematically construct a joke, these are his words, this would fit the formula. The irony, it's impossible not to appreciate it. Karma and science, that was another one they talked about. If if somehow karma and science could just, I don't know, converge on one event, what would that look like? I think I was in the open. This is the first week of October. We're about 30 days in front of a presidential election. I'm going to put my tinfoil hat on. I almost made one. I'm recording a YouTube video again. I got a cable. I think I got my audio uh, situation figured out. I want to check it out. Anyway, hi, YouTube. I'm going to put the tinfoil hat on and say that this seems awfully perfect. Doesn't it? Doesn't this seem well-timed for an October surprise? Glorious leader gets ill. Glorious Leader enters the hospital. Glorious Leader fights valiantly to overcome the virus and come back stronger than ever. Just in time for the election. I'm not saying this has happened. I have no way of knowing this. But it seems awfully perfect, doesn't it? And just think, let's, let's play the game here for just a second. Of Glorious Leader has a really mild case of coronavirus, and is out of the hospital on Tuesday or Wednesday. Nobody can say that Donald Trump doesn't understand what coronavirus is or what it's like. I'm studying like a boy. I'm not doing the reading. I'm really in school. He said that today. Yes, he said that. He's putting out videos. (laughs) Not only that, (laughs) the man gets in a big old Chevy Suburban and drives down the road while he's admitted into the hospital. He's got a, a motorcade driving down the road, waving at his supporters. I haven't looked at the news in a few hours. I don't know what's happening out there in Bethesda, Maryland, but I can tell you this, that that event, him going out there and waving at the few supporters who had gathered, is going to turn that place into a freaking shrine. You know it and I know it. How many people are going to show up in Bethesda? hoping that Glorious Leader will come out and honor them. In his carriage, his motor carriage, and if enough people show up, maybe we can look forward to having some counter-protesters show up and have a big riot right there outside of Walter Reed as Donald friggin' Trump is convalescing inside of of, of, of the hospital. I don't have a plan for this show today. I'm forcing myself to do this because <laughs> I've been pretty good about being on a schedule, as Matt pointed out last week. Look at you, sticking to a schedule. I am on a schedule. I, I feel like I have to put something out, and I have to say something about this. Right? Right? I don't have a plan for this episode. It might go 10, 15 more minutes. It might go another hour, hour and a half. I have no idea how this is going to go. I do not feel like cracking a mic today. I'm afraid I'm going to yell. I'm afraid I'm going to get upset. Anger I've displayed on this podcast and many other places. It's frustration. More than anything. I cannot for the life of me understand how otherwise smart, intelligent, reasonable people. <sighs> <Kinston. laughs> I, I got off. I went off on a tangent here. Well, I was going to say a minute ago, I apologize, but it, it may happen a couple more times today. <laughs> I don't have anything. Normally I have papers right here in front of me when I start these shows out. Because I, I, I need to have a roadmap. I prefer to know where I'm going, so I'm not just a babbling fool. Well, today I'm going to be the babbling fool. What I was going to say was that if Trump, in his positive diagnosis and his convalescence there at Walter Reed in Bethesda, he comes out of this on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday What's going to happen to the credibility of everybody screaming bloody murder and apocalypse about COVID-19? Yeah, 200,000 people are dead. Do you think that'll matter after Glorious Leader takes the virus for the team and triumphantly exits the hospital stronger than ever? I don't know. I don't like thinking like this. It's indicative of uh, many other things. In fact, I need to write this down because we're going to come back to it T-R-U-S-T. Indicative of trust. I don't trust the President of the United States enough to think that he would not engineer this event as an October surprise. I can't prove it. I'll never be able to prove it. And that's the point. That's how conspiracy theories work. Conspiracy theories are usually started by people who do not trust one element of the government or, or another. So now you've got vast swaths, and this is not just me. My girlfriend came up with this on her own on Friday. This seems a little weird. Two weeks ago, yesterday, I just turned 50. I'm, I'm not a young man. I remember when people wouldn't w- had the concept in their head that the government, no matter who was in charge, no matter who was in office, would never, ever lie about something like that. She said that, and I'm like, well, uh-huh. Old schema. As I sat and ruminated about it, I started thinking about The Apprentice and the reality show background and how this is just perfect. Sort of like the penultimate episode of a series. You need some sort of event, right? Daenerys marching on King's Landing before the dragons burn it down. This is the penultimate event leading up to the finale. That's what it feels like to me. This is too perfect. The timing is too perfect. Can't prove it. I'm very suspicious. What about the other people that all got the coronavirus? That's a great question. I don't know. See, this is a conspiracy theory. This is conspiracy thinking. Because I do not trust the son of a bitch. He's lied too many times. He's deceived people too many times. Yeah, I think he'd do it. Did he? I don't know. Do I think he would? Absolutely. I don't think there's one shred of uh, decency, dignity, or whatever you want to call it. I don't think there's one strand inside of that orange DNA that would stop him from doing that, if he could pull it off. People are suspicious. The instinct is to question the man and his his authenticity, his truthfulness. And if you're doing that, and many of us are, if you don't trust him to the degree that you don't think that he would lie about something like this, I don't want to hear out of your mouth how you're wishing him well. It's virtue signaling. It's bullshit. That statement is not about Donald Trump. It's about who you want people to think you are. I don't wish him harm. I'm a good person. See? It's like this obligatory statement that people all over cable news all weekend long. I don't wish Donald. I hope he recovers. I really hope he, he's okay. I hope he's real vigorous. I hope he's back on the campaign trail all vigorous. I heard that several times this weekend. I hope he's vigorous. This is what little liberals do. We're awesome. You <laughs> to the point where you cannot trust anybody. And what are you supposed to do? How are you supposed to navigate anything in an environment like this? You've got all sorts of people on the street outside of uh, Walter Reed Medical Center. Bethesda, Maryland, all sorts of people who are there as though, it's like John Lennon got shot. They're camped out on the road, waving their flags in support of the man. There's not a doubt in their mind, not a kernel of doubt in their mind. Antithesis of that applies to the other side, because everything that comes out of the liberals' mouths, those people who are standing on the side of the road waving their Trump flags, waving their religious banner up and down, showing their fealty and loyalty to, to glorious leader, those people, anything that comes out of any Democrats' mouths, they run to the conspiracy mind themselves, because they don't trust anything that's coming out of the other side's mouth. Same thing. There's no common point of trust anywhere anywhere. I understand people don't like cynicism. I understand people don't like all the negativity. I understand people don't like me getting angry. (laughs) You should find another podcast if that's the case. If you want me to be all happy and cheery for you, to give you a little hope, do you need some hope? I know some nice girls named Hope. You're not going to get any of this fake shit from me because looking at this, examining my own instincts and others, it's not just me. Other people have said this to me unsolicited. Different people, different things. I was Chad another one of my liberal buddies because, well, you know, I was happy. I was happy about this. I'm going to say it. I was happy Trump got COVID. So were millions and millions and millions of you. I thought it was justice. I thought it seemed like... <laughs> karma, yeah, that's the only word for it. Karma comes back, yes, he got it. After everything he said, everything that he's done. and when I, So I, I contacted a few of my liberal friends over the weekend, on Friday mostly. Like, ha-ha, <laughs> <laughs> kind of thing. And a couple of them said the same exact thing. I didn't mention it, they mentioned it to me. They do not believe that this is absolutely authentic. And a couple of them had to say, they had to add the obligatory. I don't want him to die. Are you sure? Are you sure about that? Are you absolutely sure about that? I understand the instinct in the urge to say something like that. But do you really hope he does not die deep down in, the, in your heart of hearts, inside of Brian's shadow self, where nobody can see and nobody can hear? Are you really saying to yourself, gosh, I hope he doesn't die? The problem of Donald Trump would solve itself. That was one of the first things I thought. Does it make me an asshole? Are you sure? And this is just another indication again of how trust has been destroyed in this country and how we are ripping ourselves down the middle with no common frame of reality. It's another thing I know people don't like to hear. You want me to tell you, it's going to be okay, it's going to be fine, we've been through stuff, no, we fucking haven't. We've never been through anything like this before. Well, what, the Civil War? With two armies meeting on the field of battle, and all these people being, you know, and all the slaughter going out of places like Gettysburg, yeah, maybe. That was over an issue of secession, and okay, fine, if you want to say it was over slavery too, Fine. This is institutional meltdown. Every institution in the country is under assault now. Every single one of them. The animosity created the last 10, 15 years, specifically the last four or five, it's permeating every part of society. We don't trust the vote. I don't recall if Abraham Lincoln, when he was elected, Did anybody ever say the vote was fraudulent, that it was a stolen election? Did anyone ever try to plant those seeds in the country's mind, to actually attack the institution of voting? When have we been here before, really? I'm trying to find that point in history where we have been this, divided is not even the right word, hateful. Hateful to the point that we are willing to throw reality out the window and not even agree on the color of the sky or whether or not it's raining. Where one side can't believe whether or not the President of the United States has coronavirus, has been affected and afflicted by this pandemic that we've all been suffering and enduring since February or March. Half the country doesn't believe it. Or questions it. And the other half, the thought never enters their head that the former reality show host, the guy who, whose previous job before being president of the United States was hosting a fucking reality show, they don't even consider in their minds that the man could conceive such a thought. Show me your work. If we've been here before, show me your work. I want to I know when. We've never been here before. Never. And looking forward, no matter what happens 30 days from today, it's going to get worse. It has to get worse. Trump recovers. If he has COVID, let's go with the assumption that he does have COVID. I can't prove it. Nobody can prove it. Nobody's ever going to be able to prove that this is a hoax. But let's say, at least for uh, the purposes of this rather rambling episode, that he does have COVID. He recovers, he goes out, election day comes. And Joe Biden wins, still wins, somehow, even after valiant hero, our valiant leader, comes back from his noble fight against coronavirus, if somehow Joe Biden comes out and actually wins this election. What's going to happen when Trump says it was stolen? What's going to happen when he's not telling his proud boys to stand down and stand by? What's going to happen if Trump actually does win the election? Where's Howard Dean? He said back in February the only way Trump could win was to steal the election. I think he also said that, he, that the Democrats should definitely, no matter what happens, should challenge the results if he wins. Attacking the integrity of the election. He thinks he's attacking, or he assumes, I guess, that he's attacking Donald Trump's integrity. No, he's attacking the integrity of the election process. The man was elected four years ago. To say that he can't be re-elected without cheating is horseshit. So saying you're going to challenge an outcome you don't like sounds awfully Trumpian to me, Mr. Dean. This is This is a long time ago. This is back in January or February. I think February. Biden said something similar to it earlier this year. The Democratic minions are out there. They have those thoughts in their heads. How's that going to look come December 1st? I was going to look after inauguration next year. What's going to happen? We've seen the, the radicalization on the left, the Green Tea Party. My favorite, uh, my favorites, my buddies, the woke flakes. We've seen how they've radicalized themselves since 2016 in response to Trump. How are they going to How are they going to respond to another four years? What are the woke flakes going to look like in four years? In another four years, after another Trump term, if he wins, if he wins a challenged election. Or they're the ones belching and farting that uh, the election was stolen. What is another four years of far-left radicalization going to look like? And don't worry, it's an equal opportunity show this time. Let's say uh, Biden wins. Let's say he's he's inaugurated. Somehow Trump is forced out of the White House. What's going to happen to Trump's people? Do you think, I've asked this a hundred million times, do you think they're going to stand down and stand by like the Proud Boys? Really? That's interesting. What do you think it would look like in four years if that faction, the Trumpian faction, the Trump bots, the Trump cults, after a challenged election, election they feel is stolen. What will that look like four years from now if they radicalize in the same degree that the liberals radicalized in the last four years? Have you made the mistake of thinking that Trumpism is as far as right-wing extremism can go? Really? You have found some Sausage Party hope, because I'm here to tell you, it ain't. It ain't. I want to be more hopeful. But I got to tell you the truth. The truth's ugly. It's getting uglier. Every week. Honesty is an expensive gift. I've paid the price for this many times. And sometimes rightfully so. And sometimes I've been wrong. Telling the truth in situations like this, sitting in a studio talking into a microphone, telling the truth and being right are often two different things. I have been wrong a hundred times. Wrong about a lot of things over the years. But what I've tried not to do, I've tried very hard not to tell you what you want to hear. To tell people, I've tried very hard to tell people honestly and truthfully what I think and what I see. Hopefully as devoid from any sort of outside interference or propaganda, massaging, however you want to look, I've tried very hard to do that because there are too many people just telling you what you want to hear. Stuff like this is a commodity to most people. Most people are (laughs) trying to get your attention so they can get paid or to have their ego stoked. Gaining followers and all that. They're not going to tell you the truth. They're not going to tell you what you want to hear. Or they are going to tell you what you want to hear. They're not going to tell you what you do not choose to listen to. Over the years it's cost me a lot of friends. In air quotes. Made people very uncomfortable. And sometimes I say things a little too forcefully. maybe. Bob Gibson died this weekend. It's not as much of a non-sequitur as it seems. That <laughs> is a segue. I was reading this article in ESPN. Bob Gibson, if you don't know, played for the St. Louis Cardinals. He was a pitcher. He's a Hall of Fame pitcher. Won um, 250, 275, 275 games. Struck out over 3,000 batters. When striking out people actually meant something back in the 60s and 70s. Anyway. He also set the uh, single-game strikeout record in the World Series, struck out 17 Detroit Tigers in Game 1 of the 68 World Series. He was an excellent pitcher. That's not what he was known best for. He was fierce. He was a badass. He was a black guy. He was a black guy in the 1960s. Coming up through the minor leagues in segregation, and he pitched with a chip on his shoulder. He looked at it like you know, being out on the mound is the one place where he was on equal footing with Whitey. He was angry. Angry. You look at him, and I got this from him. I'm not proud of it, but I did. I was a pitcher when I was in high school, American Legion ball, all that. I threw relatively hard, at least for where I grew up. (laughs) Couldn't control it, but I threw hard. And uh, I read a story about Bob Gibson, how someone, when, when they came to bat, if they looked at him, he'd hit them. He'd throw at them. He'd throw at their damn neck. Right, That's how angry he pitched. And I sort of stole that. I was like a, I don't know, teenager, junior high, pony league. I threw really hard, couldn't control where the ball was going most of the time. But I'd get up on the mound. This is after hearing about Bob Gibson. I'd get up there, and I'd look at the batter. And if he looked at me and didn't have fear in his eyes, I immediately went into the windup, didn't look at the catcher or anything, and I would throw the ball at his head, knock him on his ass. Hopefully I didn't hit him didn't wasn't trying to well I don't know if I was trying to hurt anybody or not I wasn't even really thinking about that I was I just knew that that guy wasn't scared of me and he needed to be he should be he will be And most of the time those poor kids got up off the ground and they're like what the hell cuz they saw me staring at them I'm looking them right in the eye from the mound I'm not looking at the catcher I'm looking at the hitter right in their eyes And if I didn't see fear I threw the ball tried to put the ball right between those eyes Got that from Bob Gibson. That's the kind of pitcher he was. He was angry. He wasn't interested in making friends. There's stories about him at the All-Star game. He pitched in the all, several All-Star games. Sort of a, uh, an opportunity for these, these players in the different leagues to fraternize with each other, right? Getting to know you. Bob Gibson, he didn't want anything to do with them. He considered those, those, those other players on those other teams as enemies he left the All-Star game early because he didn't want to associate with those people. After he struck out 17 batters, and I think in that game, uh, game one of the 68 series, somebody asked him, are you surprised, Mr. Gibson, that you did this today, that you set the single World Series game strikeout record? And he looked at him, he's like, I have nothing I do surprises me. Arrogant. Cocky. rub people the wrong way. He told him the truth. He wasn't seeking their approval. He was defiantly proud of who he was, and he had supreme confidence in himself and his abilities. He had a singular purpose. He wasn't out there to make friends, to win any congeniality awards. He was out there to strike people out, win baseball games, and not be defeated, not be beaten. He was the most competitive pitcher most people have ever seen, to this day, he didn't have a lot of friends until later in life. He mellowed after he got out of baseball, after he got out of his, you know, his field of um, endeavor. He became congenial. In fact, he was more congenial than most people thought. As long as they were not at the All-Star Game and you were not on another team competing against him, you know, people would run into him. They were surprised how nice he was. As fierce as he was on the mound. When they actually got around him, he was fine. He didn't like small talk. He had no time for small talk. It's another thing I read about him. He just he hated it. Singular purpose. I think that's, that's the only phrase that comes to mind. He was a pitcher. He had one thing to do. He wanted to do it well. He wanted to do it better than anybody else. And if you were in his way, you were his enemy, not his friend. You were there to be vanquished. From my background... How I grew up, what I was—I understood, at least to a small degree, the anger that coursed through him. Instinctively, I understand that. Not saying I, I understand what it's like to be black, It as what's going through your mind, shoo. But I did understand, and I do understand the anger, and I do understand the, the, the how that obsession to be. The best. He was a black guy in the 60s. He was going to prove something to somebody. And he did. Now, is that ego? Who gives a shit? Everybody's going to remember Bob Gibson's name as long as baseball's being played in this country. And because of the stories I just told you, excuse me, they're going to remember him outside of the realm of baseball as well. Anytime anybody talks about a competitive athlete, they're going to talk about Bob Gibson. They're going to remember Bob Gibson. People didn't like him. People didn't like the way he behaved. They didn't like his vibe. They respected the fuck out of him. And they didn't want to get in his way. I understand that. Particularly the older I get. I'm no longer traveling, sadly. I mean, next year. I might have this year, coronavirus, whatever. I'm not doing it. I'm going to be three years in January since I've been out on a trip. I can't believe that, but it's true. I don't have a career. I don't have a lot of things going on other than the material that I am trying to share with you. I'm obsessed. As I said, I turned 50 two weeks ago. That's a little traumatizing to anybody. I don't care who you are. <laughs> you start thinking about things. Time wasted. What I should have done. How little time you got left. What am I going to do with that time? You start thinking about relationships. They pointed out this, this weekend, I think. I think it was on Saturday Night Live again. That, yeah, we are. A lot of people in this country right now, because of coronavirus, because we're shutting together, because I think a lot of people are having to reevaluate everything, people are reevaluating the relationships they're in, their friendships, all of it. That's happened to me as well. More, I think, looking at turning 50 than anything. Not so much coronavirus. I don't have a big circle of peers, believe it or not, anyway. But I got to thinking about Dennis again. And I got to thinking about the useless shit epiphany I had my first day on the road. I got to thinking about turning 50. Useless shit epiphany. Got out of the car, first day hitchhiking. I had like Don Quixote, I had electric clippers in my bag, I had all sorts of stuff in my bag that I didn't need. I thought I needed them, I thought I'd want them. I didn't think they would be that heavy. All that stuff adds up. The weight adds up. And all the shit you don't need weights you down. And as soon as you start walking trying to move, you feel every single ounce on your back. That was the epiphany I had. I got to the campground and I started getting rid of stuff. It's a metaphor. I had to Go to sit down. Not really sit down. It was in incremental spurts over the last few months as I got closer to 50. And I started thinking about useless things in my life. Like, what is it about the first 50 years of my life that I need to jettison? What am I carrying from my 20s or 30s that I just don't need as I start walking through my 50s? That applies to people as well. I don't want to carry people from my 30s and 40s through my 50s. I don't want to do that. I do not want to carry that dead weight with me. Put them up on the shelf. (laughs) You put them in a box, put them in a storage unit somewhere. We'll take a peek at them every now and then. I don't want to carry them with me. And I got to thinking about Dennis again. Dennis is the uh, first real hitchhiking, ri- hitchhiking ride I got. I've told the story 100,000 times. I- I'm almost afraid to tell it anymore. I've told it so much. But again, I have new listeners periodically. They haven't heard it yet. But he was the first ride I got. I got it from uh, Fort Morgan to Glenwood Springs, Colorado. Back in 2008, he had been blown up in an oil well. Looked horrific. Horrid. Looked like a monster. And he knew it. He hated it. Hated how children looked at him. He was drinking like crazy all the way across Front Range of the uh, Rocky Mountains. Vodka—that was his drink. Huge belts out of this. I think it might have been a gallon bottle. And he was getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. Obviously, as further we got, had a computer in his truck. This was back before you know broadband Wi-Fi in a vehicle was a common thing. He got in a big settlement from the oil well accident. And uh, so he had wide broadband Wi-Fi in his truck. And I was sending out couch surfing requests all along I- I-70 trying to get in somewhere. So I didn't have to sleep out in the mountain snow in May in Colorado, but I could get inside with somebody. But I had to keep him going until I could figure out a way where that was going to be. Glenwood Springs was the place. We got there. He had started talking to me about how he felt, how Children looked at him. That was the bit, That's the one thing that reminds me, that, that really sticks in my head, was that he was bothered, terribly bothered, by how kids reacted to his appearance. He had his wife on speakerphone in the truck. I think it was through OnStar. He kept telling her, no, I'm not drinking. I haven't had anything to drink. And She knew. She knew. As we approached Glenwood Springs, had my uh, accommodation set up for the night. And he desperately did, he didn't want me to leave. We'd spent five hours in that truck, tried to, you know, share what I knew. I'd been through alcoholism, or at least the symptoms of it. I understood what it was. And I was talking to him on a human level, and he appreciated that. He really didn't want me to go. But by the time we got there, I was done with him. He was, he was getting really, really dark. There was a blackness about him that didn't scare me. Something told me, yeah, it's best carry on and I told him I'm like you know what I like you Dennis I appreciate the ride he's offering to take me to Utah the next day like I, I just don't want to be around you I can't stand I, I'm the vodka this yeah I'm done I gotta go never talked to him again exchange numbers and all that but that's you know how that goes <laughs> never talked to him again and a year later I found out that uh, he had Been estranged from his wife. She'd thrown him out of the house. Domestic violence. He was living in a hotel in Montrose. That's where he was from. One day, he decided to go back to his house. and She called the cops, of course. He was drunk. He uh, got into the garage somehow. Locked himself in there. Barricaded himself in there. Police come. Decide, well, we're going to extract you, Dennis. And they didn't realize that he had guns stashed in there. And he shot three cops. I think he killed one, and then he took the gun and killed himself. That was it. I found this in the Denver Post. That was Dennis. That was my very first ride. That five hours in that truck, with one specific human being, one very traumatized human being, has had such a profound effect on me in the last eleven years. Because he didn't, you know what he didn't tell me that the reason he was in such bad shape that he looked how he looked was because when he caught on fire he ran back into the flames to shut a valve off so other people wouldn't get fried wouldn't get burned up he didn't just stop, drop and roll he went back in there before he put himself out to try to help other people or at least keep the same thing from happening to other people he didn't tell me any of that Dennis Gurney was a complex human being, a complex human being that had been through more hell than you and I can imagine. I seriously don't think that I would have went through 20 years of that. The surgeries. He died on the operating table more than once. He he had pig cadavers for skin. A complex man. A hero and a cop killer. All in one flesh bag, right? But he couldn't, couldn't deal with what had happened to him. He couldn't deal with how it made him feel. He couldn't deal with how people reacted to him. He did all right for a long time, but he reached a point. Doctors thought he was going to live another 20 years. He got past that 20-year point and apparently deteriorated. Psychologically, he couldn't stand or couldn't move forward smoothly beyond that point that he'd I guess he'd sort of psyched himself up to get to. He couldn't do it. He couldn't live without vodka. Vodka was the one thing, even though it was destroying his life, vodka was the one thing that helped him deal with his life. A very poor thing, but it's the only thing he had. He couldn't get his life together. He could not be happy. Couldn't accept it. A terrible story. Profound. And this was the very first. Year. You wonder why I started hitchhiking, why I really got into hitchhiking? That was the very first real ride I got. Yeah. Anyway. Fast forward a couple of years, I'm pondering and thinking about Dennis. Out of that. All of that came the dentist doctrine. And it, I think it was the germination of it, the seed, came from that moment at that gas station outside the Glenwood Suites in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, where I had a choice. I could either stay with him that night or I could go and hang out with the, these strangers, these couch surfers that I had contacted. I mean, it wasn't really a choice. I wasn't going to stay there anyway, but I could have. I could have tried to help him. I could have tried this, and I could have tried that. I don't know what would have happened. He, the blackness was there. I don't think he was ever going to get violent. I'm not saying something would have happened to me. The point that came out of that, though, in my head, was that you have a choice to make, eventually, with someone who's sitting in the ditch. Metaphorically sitting in the ditch. It's a, it's a hitchhiking metaphor, okay? That's why I'm thinking this way. So i got a picture. Dennis is here psychologically, emotionally, he's in the ditch. He can't deal with his life. He can't deal with anything. Now, if you're a decent human being, you want to extend your hand and help him. For the five hours I was in that truck, I did what I could do. I talked about what I knew. I told him the truth. I was honest with him. I didn't candy coat anything. He picked up on that. I wasn't giving him platitudes. At all. I was being honest and truthful and straightforward with him. He appreciated it. But that's all I could do. And beyond that point, you have a choice to make. Someone's sitting in the ditch. You have a choice to either sit down with them and try to help them, try to motivate them, try to to get them to use their own legs, to stand up and keep walking forward. You can carry them a few steps. It's going to wear you down. It's going to detract and distract you from what it is you're trying to accomplish. And eventually, you're going to have to decide, do I sit here in the ditch with this person and sacrifice what it is I feel like I'm intended to do? I'm meant to do what I intend to accomplish for myself. Am I willing to sacrifice it for this person who refuses or can't? use their own legs to find their way forward. It's a choice. And some people think it's noble and righteous to sit in the ditch with somebody who refuses to stand up and sacrifice themselves to that person or for that person. I personally don't think so. I can't imagine... A scenario, very many scenarios where I'd do that. And that's what I call the dentist doctrine. I have talked about the dentist doctrine obliquely. I may have actually gotten into it once or twice on the show. I don't remember. But this ties into great many things. And it ties into what Brian and I were discussing rather passionately last week when it comes to... Propaganda, dogma, orthodoxy. Whether or not someone chooses to try to see the world as it is. Chooses to try. Whether or not they succeed doesn't matter. We all have you know, faulty tools of perception. We're, we're going to miss some of these things. All right? We're going to see things in distorted ways and views. Trying to see things as they are rather than just surrendering to something easy. Something that explains everything for us. That's what I was talking about when I I used that infamous phrase, fuck them, last weekend. People who refuse to try to stand up on their own legs, their own cognitive legs, who refuse to stand up and be a man, be an individual and just rely upon something being fed to them and then regurgitating it as faux wisdom. You have a choice. You can try to save those people. You can try to talk reason to those people. (laughs) It never works. Brian pointed out why, I think either in the same episode or the week before, because you can never change a person's mind with facts. This is Jonathan Haidt. You're not going to reason a person to change their mind. You're not going to reason with them to the point where, oh, I see what you're saying now. If a person is that entrenched, facts will not change their mind. You've got to massage them. You've got to feed the elephant, as high put it. Feed the emotion. Facts will not change a doctrinaire's mind, reason will not change their mind. I said this in one of the very first episodes I put out in 2018, almost three years ago. On this show, the switch is internal. That's what I was talking about. The person has to want to use their own mind. They have to want to be an original entity instead of a fabricant. It isn't hard to find, the, it is hard to find those people, but it's not hard to detect them. And it's not hard. It's, it's so easy. A little poking and prodding, a little listening. All you got to do is open your ears, ask maybe two, three questions. Two, three just general questions. And you can figure out if you're dealing with a fabricant or an actual human being, a real man, a man, his own man, or woman, or someone who's been recycled and manufactured intellectually and cognitively, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually. Not hard. And when you run into those people, I have come to the conclusion that you are wasting your time trying to save these people, trying to convince these people of anything, of anything. I forget his name. Ryan, Leo Ryan. Does that name ring a bell? It should. This guy was a senator. Congressman? I don't remember what he was. remember what he did, though. He's the guy that went down to Jonestown, French Guyana, I think. Is that right? I hope so. Whatever. Jonestown, Jimmy Jones, cult compound. Had all of his followers down there. People were worried about these followers. Want to go rescue them. There he goes. They let him in. Jim Jones let him in. He starts talking to these people. He's trying to talk these people into leaving Jonestown. Trying to convince them to leave. A few people did few people, I think, actually got on the plane or were getting ready to get on the plane. I, this just popped into my head. Normally, I would have researched this. But anyway, you go research it. Leo Ryan, that man, balls. Wonderful human being. Altruistic. Sacrificed himself for those people. I don't think he intended to. I don't think he thought that that story was going to end the way it did. But he did go down there, and he did wind up Convincing or helping or encouraging a few people to leave. He tried like hell. Have you seen the images of Jonestown after they uh, drank their Flavor-Aid? And it was Flavor-Aid, it wasn't Kool-Aid. Flavor-Aid. Have you seen the images of the people that uh, Leo Ryan could not convince? The piles of bodies that were there, bloating in the heat because... Leo Ryan could not change their mind. A few people, yes. Very few. You know what happened to Leo Ryan? Spoiler alert, he's dead. He was attacked on the tarmac, I think getting on his plane. Jim Jones and his boys, and women, I guess, I don't want to be sexist. Maybe there were women involved. Well, took their guns and attacked the plane. Attacked him on the tarmac, killed him. There's pictures of him as well, lying there dead on the tarmac after he went down and tried to save those people. I think it's a noble thing to do. I think it's a noble gesture. I think it's a wonderful thing that Leo did trying to go down there, trying to go, trying to save these people, trying to trigger that button in their head, that little, trying to flick, maybe flick them at the back of the head like, hey, this is a cult. Is the button like short-circuiting? Go take a look at the pictures of how successful he was. You cannot change anybody's mind. They have to want to change it. They have to be interested. They have to be concerned with reality themselves. You cannot, you cannot engineer that for them. In fact, the more you try, the harder it's going to get. Have you heard about social momentum? Have I told you? Yes, I have told you about social momentum. This ties into Donald Trump. I guess I can bring this home now. The more you try to convince people, the more you try to argue with people, the more you try to shame people, even if they're 100,000% wrong, the more you try to argue with people, the harder they dig their claws in. You're not having a discussion or a debate. There's not going to be a winner and a loser of this debate. There's just going to be two losers. You're going to lose because you can't convince him that you won. If he doesn't want to be convinced. The social momentum applies here because how many of us, thanks to social media, other things, the fact that each and every one of us talk politics now, like we used to talk baseball, How many of us have gone online and made our proclamations public? I believe this, and I believe this, and I believe this. I am a Trump supporter. I, well, I am a righteous, noble savage. I am a savage, worshipping liberal of the noble savage. It's coming. The return is nigh. How many people have done that? How many of us have done that? I had done this. I have done this. I have done this. My anti-tea party days, my few months in the resistance, yes, I have done this, and I remember. I know what social momentum is, and I know how painful it is to have to recount it, have to renounce your beliefs, have to renounce your religion. I understand how hard and difficult this is. Social momentum. People will, first they're not going to change their mind anyway, just to spite you. But when you've got all of this Past behavior and past comments, past, I don't know, statements, past rhetoric that's been deployed. They have to maintain it. They have to justify it. They have to save face, status. So they just compound it. They just, you know what, screw it, I'm in it. I'm in it to win it. Yeah, I might have been wrong. Screw it. I'm going to win this anyway. I'm not going to let these people know that I was wrong. I'm sure as hell not going to let my friends know that I've been wrong about all this stuff for so long. And then reason is gone. Whatever is being mistaken in the head, whatever that is up there, isn't reason. You turn into the retained attorney that I've talked about. And whatever faculties of reason you have up in your brain, they are shut down and the attorney takes over. You are Johnny Cochran defending O.J. Simpson. I mean, even Tim McVeigh had a lawyer. That's what your faculties, your your ability to reason. You're not reasoning anything. You're rationalizing. You're arguing. You're litigating. That's where your faculties of reason go. And that's all a result of not all. Shouldn't say that, but that a, a large part of that is social momentum. Things you said and the humiliation that'll come with having to walk it back, having to say, I was wrong. I've experienced this. It sucks. Especially if you've been firmly entrenched within a camp for a certain amount of time. Then the faithful, the congregation, they'll see you as a blasphemer, a traitor. Suddenly you're not on their side. You are not worshiping the same Jesus. You're a heretic. All of a sudden, they're not gonna You're not gonna make them reconsider their beliefs. How many people do you think have reconsidered their Catholicism because somebody decided not to go to church? One of their friends decided not to go to church. What are they more likely to say? Oh, he's been lost. The devil got him. I've had so many people come at me in the last three years trying to resave me, to get me back into the the liberal church. What happened to you, Todd? Heard that so many times. <laughs> when it doesn't work, and I tell them I really don't appreciate their proselytizing and trying to, you know, missionize to me, always devolved into like a shouting match, as, as much of a shouting match as you can get up. But you know what I'm talking about. The personal attacks begin. I know where that's going immediately. I have participated in it enough to understand the point of no return. Point being, you are not going to change these people's minds. Social momentum, it applies to Donald Trump in this case. Even if he has. COVID-19. Take it back to the original topic here. Even if it's not a conspiracy, right? I've heard people, have you heard any indications that he's starting to come? What the fuck is wrong with you? He can't. He's got so much invested in this. So much social momentum, social capital, however you want to look at it. He's said so much, done so much, he cannot possibly walk it back. He can't do it. I'll be amazed. I will be utterly amazed if he does. I guess maybe there's some sort of reality show (laughs) alternate... (laughs) reality, uh, where he does. I suppose that's a possibility, a small, slight, minute possibility. I'd like you to show me, though, where you've seen any indication that that man is capable of reaching that point. I keep hearing these people asking all day long, have you seen any indications that he what the hell is wrong with you? Do you know who you're talking about? He's never admitted he's been wrong about anything in his life. I don't think there's one piece of tape, audio or video, where he's admitted making a mistake. Do you think he's going to walk this back? Social momentum, political momentum. He's got the cult followers lined up on the streets outside of his friggin' hotel room in Bethesda. You think he's going to walk it back saying, Oh, well, shit, huh, I was wrong. shouldn't listen to me about any of this. A month before the election. That's another thing about the media coverage of this, and nobody's asking any damn questions. They're just they're just lapping all this up. As it's nobody's asking, looking behind the scenes a little bit, like, hey, oh, well, why would they? It's a boon. This is a boon. Watch a bunch of CNN this weekend. I hate CNN. I despise CNN. I fucking hate them. Perhaps you've heard. News Nation's only on like 8 to 10. (laughs) And they go into reruns. They don't have a big budget. So what are you supposed to listen to? How are you supposed to follow this? Because it is. It's delicious drama. It is delicious. The irony of Donald Trump getting COVID makes me want to watch. It does. So they don't ask any questions. They're just, they're just feeding the drama. Feeding the drama, feeding the drama, feeding the drama. Anyway. We had a little bit of a spat last week. so I don't know if it was really a spat. For Brian and I, that's a spat. And he didn't like that. He didn't like that I would say, fuck these people, the doctrinaires. The people can't leave the doctrine. Like, I should be trying to create a dialogue that I should be trying to save the people that do not want to be saved. And he said, rightfully so, that maybe it's divisive. Saying something like, fuck them, is divisive. And he said, maybe it's tribalism. Where's my tribe? That was the one question I wish I would have asked him last week. Where is my tribe? If I'm being tribal by saying, fuck the doctrinaires, where's mine? Who are my tribesmen? I'd like to meet them. As far as being divisive and being tribal, it reminds me of Mormons. It was the Mormons. If I kick a Mormon missionary off my front porch, does that automatically make me a Catholic? That's exactly how I see this. Telling someone, a conservative or a liberal doctrinaire, someone who has sworn their fealty and oath of loyalty to one uh, ideology or the other, By not wanting to engage in that, does that make me the other, the opposite? In other words, if I kick a liberal off my porch, does that automatically make me a conservative? In a lot of circles, (laughs) a lot of really stupid circles, they'll make that assumption. But what if I'm kicking them both off? Then what am I? I'm not sure if you've noticed, folks. Discourse is dead. Chris, to his credit has tried to engage uh, somebody, I I forget who it was, but Trump supporter. And he legitimately tried to understand where this guy was coming from. The guy wouldn't, they exchanged two emails, he shut it down. It occurred to me that uh, that's probably because you can't have a conversation without a common language. And when you're trying to understand the other person's perspective and point of view, how do you do that if you do not have a common frame of reality? How can you really reach that understanding? How can you find that point in the middle where you can at least engage in compromise? In order to compromise with somebody, you've got to, you've got to agree on what you're compromising about. Discourse is dead. And the people who've killed it are the fanatics. The people who have just given up. Maybe it's data overload. Again, there's a path to empathy here. That was going to be part of this episode as well. It's getting long. And Maybe it is data overload. Maybe there's so much out there on that D.I.K.W. pyramid that I've talked about, the data level, we're just drowning. We cannot possibly move up to information and knowledge because we are just choking on too much data. And if you're choking and you're drowning you'll get you'll you'll grab onto any piece of driftwood that'll save you. And maybe that's what all this is. That you just don't know. We just do not know. We can't figure all of this out and we will take anything that'll keep us afloat. Anything that'll explain something for us. Give us a sense of some kind of fucking certainty about something. We can't trust anything. Nothing makes sense. Nothing is uh, apparently as it seems anymore. We used to be able to trust that the President of the United States would never fake getting a coronavirus infection for political gain in October. Surprise. It may not have happened. It may be all on the level. I understand that. That's not the point. The point is that we don't trust he wouldn't do it. Nothing makes sense anymore. Won't be nothing you can measure anymore. I've seen the future, brother. what are you waiting for your message your your sausage party hope here your message of hope you thinking I was going to drop you drop it on you here at the end the happy ending I got your happy ending somebody else is going to have to write that shit because for me to even craft a happy ending from this point forward it won't be believable to me I wouldn't be able to write it with a straight face and show your work. <laughs> I think Brian's coming back next week. We'll see after this show. He may not want to be affiliated with this thing. <laughs> <laughs> then we're going on vacation a couple of weeks from now. I need it, clearly. Then we'll come back and I'll enjoy the election shit show together. It'll be great. Escapeofthecave.com is the name of the website. Escape of the cave.com is my, uh, yeah. Oh, Twitter and Facebook are shut down. I'll bother with any of that shit anymore. <sighs> and it's good. Till next time, so long.